Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Andrea Thompson, Morgana Mellion, and Nikki Brasser talk about promoting accessibility in health professions education. They discuss topics such as how they met, the difference between accommodation and accessibility, and they also expand on the universal design for learning. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm really excited to have our three guests today on our podcast, and I'll shortly allow each of them to introduce themselves. But as we start, I wanted to acknowledge that I, Ruth, am meeting and recording this podcast on the traditional territories of the Mississauga and Haudenosaunee nations and within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. I'm going to introduce our three participants in our podcast today because they are connecting from Winnipeg. And we have Morgana, Nikki, and Andrea with us. So Morgana, I'll hand it over to you to start the introductions. Great, thank you. Before we get started, uh, we would just like to as well acknowledge that Brandon University campuses are located on Treaty 1 and Treaty 2 lands, the traditional homelands of the Dakota, Anishinaabek, Cree, Oji Cree, Dene, and Metis peoples. So I'm Morgana Malian. I'm the student accessibility specialist at Brandon University. I've been in that role for about five years since my position was created in 2018. Um, it's a bit of an odd landing spot for me, given that my background is late 19th, early, early 20th century Canadian history, but um, I've really found my place there in the office. That's wonderful. Thank you, Morgana. Nikki. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Nikki Brasser. Uh, I am a French Scottish settler living in Treaty One Territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, I am a graduate student in the uh, Cultural Studies Curatorial Practices Program at the University of Winnipeg. And my research focus has actually been on equitable access and producing new methods of translation or inclusion within institutional settings, uh, particularly for individuals at the intersections of disability. Thank you, Nikki. And Andrea. Hi, everyone. My name is Andrea Thompson. I'm a registered psychiatric nurse and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatric Nursing at Brandon University. I've worked as a psychiatric nurse primarily in acute care settings for nearly 15 years, and I've now been with the university for five years. And before we get started, I also want to acknowledge other members of our research team who are not present with us today. Michelle Magnuson with Accessibility Services, Kathy Baxter in the nursing department, and Sherry Dick in psychiatric nursing all at Brandon University. Thank you very much, everyone. And I wanted to provide a bit of background to the listeners for how I crossed paths with Morgana, Andrea, and Nikki. And it was really serendipitous, but also just such an opportunity and a privilege. We were each 
presenting at the Canadian Association for the Schools of Nursing conference this year. And we had separate virtual presentations. And I, uh, the, the theme for the conference this year at CASN was on inclusion and advancing equity and inclusion in our academic environments. And so I was approached by Morgana and Andrea after their presentation, because in my presentation, I was talking about how we can advance equity and inclusion in podcasting. And so I felt so fortunate that they reached out to me and I very quickly looked at their presentation as well. And their presentation was on nursing and psychiatric nursing students with disabilities and inclusive practices. So I'll uh, direct the question back to you all. How did you three come together to study this topic and to present on this topic? So there's been important focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion in today's society. However, I often find that conversations about disability are often missing from these important discussions. I've also anecdotally heard concerns that nurses and nursing students with disabilities are ill-equipped to provide safe and competent care. So being a nurse and an educator, I wondered if there was any truth to these concerns. So I began reviewing the literature and I wasn't able to find a study that associated a disability with unsafe nursing practice. Um, what I did find was that nurses and nursing students with disabilities experience discrimination, marginalization, and ableism, both in education and practice. I also found studies that the experience of disability can actually improve care provision, suggesting that the, that experience can increase skills of empathy and therefore nurses can better relate to the clients that they serve. In addition, there's research, research calling for a more diverse workforce, which would include nurses with disabilities to better address some of the inequities in our healthcare system. Um, when I look specifically at safety in nursing, safety concerns were more so related to fatigue, which can happen to anyone rather than disability. Um, but all that being said, there was not much literature available. And what we found in academia that most literature focused on faculty perspectives rather than student perspectives. So we decided to partner up nursing, psychiatric nursing, accessibility services to explore student experiences. And we wanted to directly hear from students to better guide our practices and policies and perhaps challenge some of these assumptions about disability leading to unsafe care. So that's how we all came together. And very thankfully, Nikki was interested and joined our team. Um, she's been a very valuable member because she's outside of accessibility services and health studies. And she's really helping to bring light to the stories of students. Uh, yeah, um, I came on the project, uh, I believe March of last year, and I work primarily on the like the full interview process um, and one-on-one -on -one interactions and conversations with students. And one of the really big things that I kind of took away and highlights from these conversations that I had with students was that while having like physical in-person classes uh, was really great for social interaction with other students or faculty members, 
The pandemic kind of set this precedent that there were really other options of learning available, um, and students really felt that while in-person was great to be back to, having those kind of like online options available for students that were at the intersections of disability was an extremely valuable asset, particularly because it it not only provided accommodations for students that were requiring accessibility services, but also for really anybody that had access issues. Also, one of the things that I really took away from the interviews was that there's still quite uh, an immense amount of stigma taking place around what disability actually looks like. Uh, students found it, um, I suppose, really difficult uh, to be accommodated within clinical placement settings, just because uh, if they had uh, a disability, particularly an invisible one, uh, there was like, I guess, some concerns or stigmatization for those individuals. And honestly, a lot of students felt, I suppose, ostracized and ended up really just pushing through I guess, what they felt that they could do for themselves without accessing any kind of services, because they really wanted to be treated as equals and have the same opportunities. Um, and coming from personal experience, I know having those like awkward conversations and confrontations with individuals that don't understand where you're coming from, or conversely, uh, don't believe you is also quite traumatizing. So as, as far as the interviews were concerned, it, it kind of came to light that um, while there was like a huge understanding of what accessibility services were available within the classroom setting, the clinical setting seemed to provide some kind of disconnect. Nikki, I really appreciate what you were sharing in terms of the hesitancy that learners would have in revealing or disclosing a disability because of the stigma that is associated or the perhaps negative repercussions or unknown consequences of disclosing a disability. And I, I know that in your presentation, you mentioned the that there was a difference between accommodation and accessibility. So could you tell us more about that, the differences between accommodation and accessibility and why this difference is important to understand in the context of the learner experience of navigating the accommodations process? That's a really great question. I'm glad that you asked that because I think those two terms often get conflated with one another and there is a lack of understanding about the difference. Um, and going off of what Nikki was mentioning earlier, the accommodation process and accommodations as a tool does rely heavily on disclosure of disability, um, which again is already a barrier for students. So I think it's important to recognize that accommodations do have a place and a function and are very important. The implementation of accommodations for students with disabilities has increased in higher retention rates and graduation, but it's a misnomer. It doesn't increase equity by any means. So if we think about a student who is visually impaired, for example, they are going to have to access many more steps and fill out many more forms just to be enrolled in a class and have access to their learning materials where 
one of their classmates may only have three steps to get registered for classes. So there's going to be a lot more that's involved. Uh, we often have that conversation in our office about how do we reduce barriers and steps and paperwork for students to just be able to get into the classroom to start learning. So accommodations are a tool. They're great. They're very individualized. So it, it involves a student sitting down, disclosing to the accessibility service office, providing medical documentation, having sometimes several conversations about what the barriers in the learning environment are and then what accommodations are necessary. Accessibility, on the other hand, is it's proactive and it's community-based and it's for all individuals. So rather than a student having to disclose disability, have an individualized accommodation plan, um, an accessible learning environment means that all learners, regardless of disability, identity, so having an accessible learning environment means that all learners, regardless of disability, language needs, identity, life circumstances, are going to be able to have equitable access to the learning environment. And so that's the goal, right? Accommodations are great, but we're really trying to retrofit a learning environment to each individual student rather than completely changing the structure of the system and making it open and accessible to all learners. So I'm involved in another research study that's looking at the experiences of nurses and mental health nurses with disability during their clinical practice. And an aspect of this study involves accommodations and accessibility. And what we're finding is that there's many instances where nurses require accommodations because the system is inflexible or the system is flawed. So for an example, an accommodation that's come up frequently is that the nurse is able to take an additional 15 minutes break if needed. So often that's to use the bathroom or to destimulate from those fluorescent lights in hospital-based settings. And that seems reasonable to me, but this particular accommodation is needed because nurses consistently miss their breaks. So they go without breaks. So this accommodation is needed so that a nurse with a disability has their breaks prioritized. So that's a system issue, right? It's not an individual issue. An accessible environment would allow all nurses to take their breaks and to use the bathroom as needed. So I think that some of the ableism encountered is because nurses with disabilities are bl being blamed in a way for system issues. Well, why do they get to take a break when I missed mine? Or if you look at the lighting, well, those fluorescent lights cause headaches for a lot of people and issues for people. So an accessible environment would address the lighting for the entire environment so more people would benefit right there's been research into light therapy which seems to have a calming effect so if we change the environment certain nurses would no longer need that specific accommodation the environment would have become more accessible for all so that's what really stands out as being important to me examining these accommodations things that are provided and not provided helps identify the parts of the system that need to be addressed, like the constantly missing breaks, 
And these needs should be universally addressed so that all nurses or all students in these settings have their needs met. And therefore it would improve accessibility and reduce the need for individual accommodations. This was a really profound insight that I gained from your presentation. Because when I first heard the, the distinction between, or the need for us to understand the distinction between accommodation and accessibility, I didn't get it at first until you started to elaborate in your presentation on why that was so important. And so I'm really grateful that you're also sharing this with us here because the more I hear you describe the distinctions, the more it hits home to me how we have understood or practiced this concept of accommodation from the perspective of placing the onus on individuals to then have to advocate for themselves, to have to justify why they, quote, need X or Y accommodation. And the onus is on the individual when we talk about accommodations. And I also see some of our own shortcomings in terms of how we approach accommodations of students. We think, we're, we say, oh, we provide accommodations or we, we direct students to the accommodation process thinking that we are doing such a great service when I'm realizing that there is also perhaps a, uh, we need to do more. We need to go farther and also address the system level issues that are contributing to the individual's experiences. And this is what you're pointing out in accessibility is that if we, are, we have a mind towards the context or the system level changes that are needed to ensure that all can be accessible or all can access and that it is accessible, then that's the direction we should be focusing on. And that's where we should go. It, am, I, am I hearing what you're saying correctly? Absolutely, 100%. And I think with that, when we talk about accessibility and accommodation, right, the automatic thought is, we're talking about students with disabilities. But when we look at creating accessible learning environments, then we are actually as institutions fully embracing EDI principles, which as Andrea had mentioned earlier on, disability tends to be left out of those conversations. And so by addressing systemic changes in our institutions to create accessible environments, we're actually going to make a far better, more inclusive learning environment for all of our diverse and marginalized populations of students. Yes, and it really does allow or remind us to expand our conceptualization of equity, diversity, and inclusion to other marginalized groups or equity-deserving groups that we don't immediately, or we haven't immediately thought of when we talk about EDI. That's really helpful. And it connects to another question that I had uh, about your presentation. And this was in the section where you talked about technology integrated learning or technology integrated health professions education. And I think about this even as we do a podcast like this and recognizing that a podcast by its nature is an audio only format. And what are we doing to improve accessibility or to facilitate accessibility on uh, something like a podcast? And so 
transcribing our podcasts into text as one attempt. But I know that there are others that we haven't even thought of. So my question is, tell us about Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, and how this is relevant or important for us as we incorporate and integrate technology in our health professions education. So Universal Design for Learning is an interesting concept, and it stems from the architectural world in creating uh, accessible built environments for all individuals. And so really, on a fundamental level, universal design is proactive rather than reactive. So that goes back to our conversation around the distinction between the differences with accommodation and accessibility, right? So we really want to be proactive. We don't want to wait until we have a student come to the student accessibility office and say, hey, I can't access my lecture materials, right? We want to plan ahead and create materials in a number of different forms so that we don't have that barrier for students. A lot of faculty are scared of universal design. They tend to put walls up when they hear that. But it's interesting because during COVID, a lot of faculty were implementing universal design into their teaching. So the recording of lectures and having closed captioning available on Zoom, that's a really great way to make the lecture material available to all students, whether students are parents and they can't attend the lecture at the scheduled time, whether an individual needs to slow down the recording and listen to it twice. And so in student accessibility circles, when we were getting ready to come back to campus and be full-time in person again, we were having lots of discussions about what we were hoping would stay from the pandemic. And a lot of that universal design, those really simple things that facu faculty could do for students were the things that we were hoping would stay. But we seem to have lost a little bit of that in the return to in-person. But the idea behind universal design is really that flexibility. It's a student-centered learning approach. And it's all about open communication between the learners and the instructor. I can piggyback on that because Morgana's right. The pandemic did provide insight into different ways of doing things. And that's something that Nikki had brought up that a lot of the students recognize some of the benefits from the, from the pandemic. And it really helped expand some teaching strategies and course delivery. And I think helped illustrate that we can do things differently and still prepare students to meet their entry-level competencies. And the recording of lectures is such an easy thing for an instructor to do. So since the pandemic, I continue to record my lectures. I have the closed captioning on in real time for students in class to see. So this saves students from needing an accommodation to record a lecture. It benefits other students in the class who maybe were unable to attend due to illness, or they maybe want to go back and rewatch a recording. Maybe they didn't understand their notes, or maybe I spoke too quickly. So we still have an attendance policy in place, and I continue to monitor attendance, but we now have this additional backup that saves a lot of steps for a lot of students and probably saves me time 
because I don't think I receive as any as many emails asking questions about my lectures or the assignments because I'll also record instructions for assignments and then students can go back and watch that. So I mean, that's just one small example that's very easy to implement. Universal design and this idea of making things more accessible and easier for students and faculty alike, it takes the onus off of a centralized accessibility center as well, right? So it transfers the responsibility for accessibility to everybody at the institution. Um, we'll often see students come through the door because their faculty have just sent them straight to us. Or if there's any type of accommodation question on campus, we get an email. And we often say that this is not just our job, that everyone needs to be responsible and universal design does that. And like Andrea said, she gets less emails because students have less questions. And so we have to look at, we have these really stringent systems and structures in place, but why, to what end? If students are still watching the lectures and doing the assignments and meeting the outcomes, maybe we need to look at why those structures existed to begin with. I really appreciate the points that you're making. And Nikki, I don't know if you wanted to jump in as well. Yeah, actually, um, I think it's really interesting for me in this conversation because I'm still a student. And as somebody who has, um, I've been a student for six years and as somebody who has only accessed uh, accommodation services for my own disabilities for the last two and a half. I can really say that um, in this kind of like post COVID moment, there's like this incredible rigidity to get to a pre COVID condition. And there's an extreme lack of acknowledgement um, from the university and the institution itself that accessibility and support really do need more staffing and funding. <laughs> and rather than having <laughs> these sort of reactive approaches to kind of offering support, um, I really do feel uh, that there needs to be a lot more proactive change and programmatic initiatives, particularly to educate faculty on disability and what access services actually is. Um, because like at the end of the day, the instances of students uh, requiring access services is only on the rise. And there needs to be a lot more I suppose a decolonized understanding of embodied and minded differences um, within the university setting. Um, so essentially building accessibility into programs from the beginning uh, would be that sort of proactive solution to equitable access and emphasizes essentially the university's like continual approach to inclusion rather than just really troubleshooting. Yeah, exactly. And just to like pig piggyback off your point, Nikki, and I know that this is something that you and I have talked a lot about, right? But that intersection between decolonizing higher ed and reconciliation and accessibility, right? There's, there's a strong intersection there. And when we talk about systems that don't work, higher ed is the colonial system, right? And so it is not working for a lot of student populations. And this is where that 
you know, blowing up the system and looking at doing things in a flexible or different way, just because we've all, we've always done something one way doesn't mean that it's the right way. And I do see this as well as this desire to go back to pre-COVID, but so many of our learners coming into university right now don't even know what university pre-COVID looked like. And so there's this difference in expectations between students and teaching faculty. And this is our opportunity to start to do things differently. Wow, I have so much to process from what you all have said. I'm going to highlight two points because they are at the front of mind right now. And then I'm going to need some additional time to reflect uh, more deeply on some of the really important and valuable points, especially that Nikki, Morgana, you both are making around how decolonization looks and how that is um, aligned with our, our work in uh, advancing equity and inclusion, as well as accessibility. My, my first learning point, I'll say, is that uh, I've always gotten the acronym wrong around universal learning design or universal design of learning. But Morgana, thank you for giving me a bit of the background around universal design and how it arose from the architecture world, because now I will never forget it. It's universal design, UD, for learning. And I can imagine that if it came from architecture, it's likely universal design of living or universal design. And it really makes a lot more sense to me now in terms of the whole idea of universal design for these various contexts, whether it be the learning environment, the living environment, our built environment. Now that, that ties in a lot uh, more clearly for me. So thank you for that. The second part is I really appreciate your challenge to us as listeners and to me as the, the person that's uh, facilitating this discussion today to also take responsibility for the way that we develop our courses, the way that we deliver our courses and our programs or deliver any type of educational opportunity or initiative and how we need to assume greater responsibility to promote accessibility within the education environments that we practice, rather than the, I think the default, I would say, is the sense of, oh, a learner's requesting an accommodation, we will direct you to accommodation services, student accessibility services, etc. And that just it's being reinforced in my mind that that directing of learners is not enough and that we need to take greater ownership. And Andrea, thank you for providing even what you're saying are simple examples, but I don't think that they're simple because I think that they're quite profound in the ways in which you took that initiative of recording your lectures, closed captioning your lectures or your classes, I'll say, and how those active steps resulted in a more positive experience for your learners. So I appreciate you sharing that example. And I'd like to open up to the three of you one final question that's connected to these examples. And that is, I would love to hear your takeaways in terms of how you have either demonstrated 
or implemented inclusive practices at Brandon within your individual roles or even with your collaborations together. And I ask that from the perspective of what can we hear from you and apply in our own context as well? So that is my last question to you. I can jump in there and I'll add a, a comment about the recording lectures is there's a fear that if you make things more accessible, that students won't attend. So if you yeah, do all of exactly. these things and you record your lecture, nobody's going to show up. That is actually the opposite of what I found is the more accessible you make an environment, the more students want to attend because they feel welcome and their more needs are being met. And so by recording my lectures, I still had like a 95% attendance. And that's probably better than in the past before I recorded my lectures. So it did not negatively impact attendance in class. Um, but again, I, I want to say that we're not perfect either. Like we, we don't have all the answers, the stigmas there and ableism exists in our institution, but we're learning and we're growing and we're recognizing that there are a lot of barriers that we still need to overcome. Um, but as a nurse educators, we're gatekeepers of this profession and we're in prime positions to increase diversity in the workforce. So we play a really essential role and, and we need to take that really seriously. And we have to also remember that like accessibility, inclusion, that's, that's a human right. Like that's legislation. And I think that piece is often forgotten or missed, or maybe there's a misunderstanding of what that means. Um, so some things that we're doing just within our institution or in our faculty is we've created a policy specific to clinical accommodations. We now have uh, EDI committed committees specific to health studies that includes faculty and students. Um, we're starting to learn that we need to do a better job of providing accommodations in the, the clinical environment. As Nikki was saying at the onset, we don't have a good understanding of what's considered to be a reasonable accommodation in a clinical setting. And then there's fear from faculty. Well, if we accommodate this now, will the person be accommodated in clinical practice? Um, and so just kind of learn, trying to learn more about that process and what that would look like. Um, I think areas personally that I see that need to grow is in regards to the skills labs and clinicals, because we have a really good understanding of reasonable accommodations for classrooms and testing, and we have universal design, but it's that clinical piece that really gets stuck. And I think that ties back to this fear that nurses with disabilities will have unsafe practice. So we've established a working group specific to clinical settings. That is a partnership between health studies and accessibility services, which is still in infancy stages, but it's sort of a positive step forward. And something else that's brought forward is education. So not only education for faculty, but also education for those in clinical sites like preceptor training, for example. So 
what do we need to know and how can we better support students because students ultimately do better when they feel supported and their needs are being met. In terms of approving accessibility, our program is structured in a very inflexible way. And so like currently it's structured to be taken full time. So you do this program in four years and this is how it all progresses. But that doesn't meet the needs of a person interested in part-time studies or a person who maybe needs to take a year off due to whatever type of reason. So our inflexible structure is holding some people back. And so we're trying to address this by doing a curriculum review to say, well, here's what the program would look like if you took it in four years. Here's what it would look like in five years, or here's what it would look like in six years to build that flexibility in. Um, so looking at areas that we have control over and makes changes in areas that we can control to better meet the needs of students. That's, that's incredible. I, just the areas that we have control over, which once again reminds us of our individual responsibility in promoting accessibility within our own practices, but also contributing to systems level, program level, course level changes as well. And that's a, that's a great example of just different program trajectories or tracks that learners can take depending on their specific circumstances. Organa, Nikki, are there any other examples or initiatives that you would like to recommend? I think to Andrea's point that cross-campus collaboration is really important. We all tend to work quite siloed um, and I have to, give hats off to Andrea. Her research projects have done a really great job of bringing our office together with health studies and having these conversations and establishing, you know, the working group that's in its infancy. But those, those collaborations and those conversations are really important because no one person is the expert or has the answers or the ability to change a system. But collectively, we have a lot more ability to do so. Um, I'll use an example of one of the initiatives that I've done through our office. So we have a institutional site license to a literacy program called Text Help Read and Write. Um, I have started, so it's available for free for any faculty or student on BU campus, on personal devices and, and lab computers. I just haven't had a ton of time to do a lot of, of that, that promotion. But the last couple of years, I have partnered with um, our program for the education of Native teachers, our PENT program, and I've offered workshops at their orientation. So it's not the work that I'm doing with promoting and implementing the program for students is not disability related but it is working on getting more accessibility technology and tools to more learners. So I think that's the thing is collaborating across campuses, asking other offices, how can we work together? What do students need? And also asking students. Like it's really important, um, this research project that Andrea is heading up, right? We're looking at narratives. And so going to students and asking them to share their stories and their narratives and having us learn from 
what they have to say. Yeah, I would definitely say like, because I'm not part of the faculty and I come from a student perspective, one of the biggest things that I think has been a takeaway, not only from this project, but my own experience is that conversations are kind of integral <laughs> to facilitating, um, you know, an openness. And I think because there has been such a stigma around disability for like so long, I think there's a lot of fear to kind of step into the possibility of change. And so I like, even at BU, when I was there, I had a professor, Dr. Kathy Mattis, who actually instilled this little, very, very simple technique in our classroom where we would have like a little set of mixed beads. And if we were having a really difficult day, she would have us, you know, go through and separate these teeny tiny little beads. And it would just provide us like a distraction. And I mean, like that, that's something that is so easy to implement um, just by offering, you know, this kind of way to step outside of you know, what you're going through and yourself to actually still participate in the class and listen, but maybe have like an opportunity to actually like settle. And so like, even in conversations that I have um, in the program that I'm in now, there is a lot more of an openness in the roundtable discussions that we have with students. Um, and it's like, we're almost educating professors on, you know, accessibility options and how, how students need to be met at this point in this kind of post-COVID moment, because coming back uh, to a graduate program, the first year we go into full study um, and like physically full in-person study, um, it was quite an intense uh, experience, to say the least. And so there was an extreme rigidity within the first month. But then once professors really started opening up to having conversations with students, it became pretty, pretty imperative to make things a little bit more lax um, because you could see the student drop-off rate happening quite dramatically um, and students were failing. So once... Once people started actually having, you know, one-on-ones or group discussions about how to meet the students where their needs were, uh, it kind of opened up a door to the potential of doing this indefinitely. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I'm really hearing very clearly something that we sometimes say uh, in words, but we don't actually demonstrate in practice. And that is that the, the student voice is important. And also that we need to act on what our learners are telling us. And I think that those are two, uh, th that's a two-parter and in, in message in terms of the need to welcome and hear and act on the students' perspectives and what they're sharing and recognizing that sometimes learners don't even feel comfortable or feel uh, that they will be heard. And so even opening up the doors and making those uh, opportunities more explicit. So thank you for sharing that. And then Morgana, your point about our need to continue to build those cross disciplinary and cross-professional collaborations. And your, your collaboration in this research project is proof of that by virtue of 
you both being from different parts of, I'll say, the different parts of the university, and yet you're collaborating on a project that has uh, with direct applications to the nursing students, but also applying these principles across the university to impact all students. So thank you for that insight as well. I appreciate your time here. Morgana, Nikki, and Andrea, thank you for joining me in this conversation today. And I'm grateful for your time and I'm grateful for the wisdom that you've shared with me and for the listeners. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.